0: Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code COLBYPODCAST to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings' excellent products. That's Podcast which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening.
1: Cycle Lots, seekers of information and overstanding, welcome to Cycling in Alignment. I'm driving, it's another car pod, on my way to California. Colorado for the next course in my curriculum of the Czech Academy. It's taught at the Czech Institute, or actually this course will be taught at Paul's house, the rainbow house in Rainbow, California. And it's IMS four, which stands for integrated movement specialist level four. We're going to focus on the cervical and thoracic area, uh, head and neck. That is and learn all the things. I'm expecting this course to be quite challenging. It's longer than IMS one, two, or three. It's, I think it's nine days of actual class with a break in the middle. Maybe it's eight with a break in the middle. And I'm pretty much anticipating this will be like a fire hose with a bit of blender. Um, My brain being the part that goes to the blender. So looking forward to it. it, should be pretty intense. And things have been a little busy going into this week of class. So that's why I have neglected to get a pod out. But I'm excited because I'm also recording two other podcasts with new guests while I'm in California. So it's going to be uh, an opportunity for me to get a lot of good content out to my audience. That's you. So I want to say thank you for listening. And also, thank you if you have patronized the podcast's supporter, that's Enduro Bearings. You know by now you can go to EnduroBearings.com and trick out your ride. I've been rocking my XD-15 bottom bracket on my Mosaic GT1, and I love it. Also on that topic, stay tuned for an upcoming episode with Aaron Barczyk, the CEO, Graham Huba and Jedi Master of Mosaic Cycles. Going to talk about all the things involved in building titanium whips so that'll be cool as well i'm going to publish an article on my site about the mosaic and get some good content going there not so much to talk about my neat bike although that'll be part of it because i like to talk about bikes but also to talk about design philosophy and why i made the choices i did in the components and the geometry and we'll get aaron's feedback on why he chose the tubing layout he chose for my bike So that'll hopefully give people insight that is useful to them in their own bike building quests. Because I do get a lot of questions about those types of outcomes or choices when you're talking about a custom frame. A lot of people think about custom bikes as just being different length tubes, and that's part of it. But a good custom builder also chooses the tubing layup that suits the rider and their riding style best. So that's the diameter of the tubing, the gauge, the budding profile. Those types of choices can be selected. And a good builder has a lot of choices to work on because then they can fine-tune the ride more appropriately for the rider. Subject, of course, to supply chain problems. So that's coming up. Also have a couple of other guests I mentioned that I'm, going to be interviewing California. So looking forward to those pods. Forecasting, pod forecasting. That's what I just did. But today I'm going to talk about a few topics that may seem miscellaneous. However, I will tie them together with a happy bow of philosophical discussion. One of the points is a question I've received from a couple of readers about mobile chain rings. And I'm going to talk about that, not from so much of a scientific perspective, I'm not going to read a bunch of reviews on oval Chain Rings. What I'm going to do is share my own experience and the bits and pieces I've gathered from working with different writers over the years using oval Chain Rings. And I'm going to tie that together with a few bigger picture philosophical concepts that have been floating around in my mind movies that I want to share with the audience. And that is the concept of internal tension and also internal knowledge in opposition to external knowledge. So tension versus flow. This is a concept that Ron Kochevar and I talked quite a bit about on our podcast and it's really important, but I want to sort of specifically address how that impacts our training and racing and cycling. And then internal knowledge versus external knowledge and the placing of power outside the self to have understanding about a topic. And I want to talk about that paradigm, that relationship and how in our society right now, we tend towards looking externally towards expertise. And in some cases that is very valuable and absolutely necessary. But probably in far more cases than people think, that is not the best path. Or I'll say, not the path that can offer you the most insight. And ultimately, everything needs to be tested on the self. Which comes back to the most important principle of athletics. Yes, this is a new tenant that I'm throwing out into the world of cycling and philosophy. I'll make the statement right now. I'll plant my pole in the sand. I will plant it firmly and I will also knock it over myself if need be. But for now it's a very big pole and it's very firmly planted. And the tenant is the most important thing you can do as an athlete. The single most important thing you can do is to simply know yourself inside and out from all angles, from all sides with as unbiased as possible of a viewpoint. And part of that process means hiring a coach because we cannot see under our own backside. Even the most flexible yogis in the world cannot see certain parts of their bodies. And that's a metaphor for the fact that we can't see our own shadow. We can't always see through our own bullshit. And we need someone else to call us out and challenge us this is a practice I've been performing on myself for many years is doing my best to be honest with myself and see my own bullshit. Of course, it's a fool's errand. I can never fully see myself authentically and completely. So I have to consult the mirrors around me, otherwise known as the other people in relationship with me. That's how this works people. That's how life works. In case you missed the memo on that. Okay. So let's rewind back to oval rings. What's the deal? As I mentioned, I've had a couple readers ask me about oval chain rings, and I have some experience with oval chain rings for sure. Here's what I got, here's what I can throw down. At one point, I tried a really bizarre experiment. I managed to get a round ring and an oval ring on my time trial bike at the same time of the same size. And it had to be the right time trial bike. I think it was an old T-Meyer aluminum bike. And the reason it has to be um, an older bike probably is because this bike had an exceptional amount of chainstay clearance for a big chainring. Because if you put a large chainring on the inside position of most crank sets, it will not clear the chainstay on most bikes. But this bike, I managed to get it done. Um, I think the clearance was extremely tenuous, but I just did it anyway. And then I went out and did intervals, and I was able to switch back and forth using my front derailleur Sorry, the beeping is my car telling me that I'm... It thinks I'm going to drive off the road even though I'm not. Silly car. And so here are the beeps. That's, uh, that's the car telling me all the things. And so what I did is I rode my TT bike and I did multiple intervals, shifting back and forth between the round ring and the oval ring. But I also stopped between intervals and rotated the ring between positions. So this was a rotor chain ring. I think this conversation can be extended into other oval chain ring manufacturers as well. Rotor, most of you probably know, you can, you can adjust some rotor rings pretty much indefinitely or infinitely almost within a half a degree. But this <clears throat> model had positions one, two, three, four, and five. And three would equate to having the peak increased radius at three o'clock, four would correlate with about 4.30 or something like that, and five would be about 5.30 and way late in the pedal stroke. Two would be much earlier in the pedal stroke, and one would be just after the crank came past vertical. And the idea for me was to rotate through these different positions, one through five, and see which of them felt better, and then also measure and correlate with speed, power, and heart rate. And I had an SRM on, for the record, and I did my best to tension the chainrings uh, properly, the chainring bolts properly, and also perform the zero offset after each effort, and then ride for a couple minutes and do another one to make sure everything is settled. This is how power meters work, and strain gauges work. You gotta put tension into the system, so we'll say, and then let everything equalize, and then measure again. So I did that and I looked at the data. Now I didn't do this 15 times or even three times. I think I did it once or maybe twice. And there was no clear trend in the data. What I found subjectively was that the round ring or position four felt the best to me, felt the most natural to me. Now, we have to keep in mind that I was probably making power a certain way. And most people probably have a peak torque moment in their pedal stroke around position four most of the time. And this was several years ago. This was way before I was a podcaster and had all my philosophies about how to pedal a bike and probably wasn't practicing some of the advice that I give people now so much about pedaling. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't. This was probably in around 2008, something in that neighborhood. Maybe no. Sorry, correction. It could have been as early as 2003. To be honest, I don't know. Did rotor rings exist then? I'm pretty sure they did. So that's where I'm. That's what I'm going to go with. Somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, let's call it 2003 to 2008. So long as time ago, and. So the point being is when we pedal with a peak around four o'clock, that is the peak torque hits around four o'clock in the pedal stroke, right? Remember this is our clock face oriented on the right, on the drive side of the stroke for the record, then it would make sense that the four o'clock position probably felt best to me because that's when I was the peakiest. So I was taking advantage or working in harmony with the crank set. So that begs the question, well, do you want to work in harmony with the crank set? That would be a short-term solution. Or do you want to use the oval ring to train you to build torque capacity in a different aspect of your pedal stroke? Well, that's a pretty good question. I don't know that I know the answer to that. Although as a coach, I would want to explore that over time and see. Now using the SRM, we don't have We have modeled left right power, although back then they didn't have that. But we don't have any kind of torque curve. We don't have the kind of metrics you get now with, for example, Garmin pedals, where it tells you what your total arc of power is on the downstroke and also where your peak is. And those would have been pretty handy tools to have back then, because that would have given me more insight. Have I gone out and done this test since then? No. Um, Have you? Well, Maybe let me know. Send me an email. CWPcoaching at me.com. Let me know what the results were. Did you use a rotor ring and change positions one through five and get different results in your heat torque? I'd be curious to find out. So, I didn't have those tools at the time. So, what I was looking at was cadence, power, heart rate. We didn't even have a head unit that could display torque at that point. So, I was not looking at torque. Although... I'm one of the people who lobbied to have only put torque into the head unit of the PCA as an option. That's the SRM head unit when I worked at SRM. Sorry, that sentence was completely out of order. I think you got the idea. And the reason is because power is comprised of two components, cadence and torque. And for some reason, coaches commonly prescribe work in power and sometimes specify cadence If your coach is giving you workouts and assigning power and heart rate, or maybe just power and not cadence, they're only doing about one eighth of their job in terms of writing workouts. For the record, I'll be a bit critical here. Writing power, prescribing power zones, first of all, is something I don't do in training anyway. But secondly, I definitely don't do it without recommending cadence. Let me me rephrase that. I don't recommend power zones, but when I do recommend intervals, I always specify cadence range or nearly always. giving someone a workout without telling them what cadence to do is like, it's like going into the gym and asking someone to do eight squats and giving them no clue as to how fast or slow you want them to do those reps. And believe me, if you do eight reps of squat over 24 seconds or over eight seconds, it is a completely different workout. Trains different fibers. It trains different capacities. It trains different joint angles, potentially, it challenges form for the athlete in different ways. It'll be more challenging to an elastic athlete to do the slow reps, and it'll be more challenging to a compressive athlete to do the fast reps, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, if you're doing this as a coach, shame on you. Start prescribing cadence. But that was a random tangent to explain that the fact that none of us ever prescribes workouts based on torque is sort of weird. Because Power is comprised of two variables Cadence and torque So we're only shining the flashlight on one Most riders don't even know what torque is They have no idea what their torque ceiling is They have no idea what kind of torque they can do For a two minute effort Or a five minute effort Or what, what kind of torque threshold they have Some riders have an idea Of what their cadence threshold is At different intensities But most have no clue What their torque threshold is But it's a significant Determiner of outcomes in some types of bike races, and it plays a role in all outcomes of all bike races. So, when Andy Coggan once told me torque is irrelevant, I will disagree with him. At some point, I'd love to have a conversation with him about that. That would be cool. So, anyway, uh, back to rotor rings. So, I my test had the results, my short little test, N of 1, had the the results that either the round ring or the position 4 felt the best. Did I see significant improvements in power or lower heart rate or higher speed with any of those 1 through 5 positions or the round ring? No. They were all within a margin of error on the power meter. Okay, so that kind of told me that perhaps if I used the rotor ring for a while and I adapted to it, I might gain some benefit. But I also supplemented this data with reports from various riders at the world tour level who were using rotor rings. And this is the trend that I came up with. For someone who was a large muscle mass rider, meaning, and also was very glycolytic, meaning a sprinter. You would think that they might use a rotor ring, which fundamentally tries to increase the lever arm at key points of the stroke and then decrease the lever arm at other points of the stroke. Thus, taking advantage of, the idea is that it takes advantage of your bigger, poppier downforce during the peakier part of your stroke, and it helps you through the point with your dead spot. Now, philosophically, this is a little problematic. Before I go more on the glycolytic window, this is problematic because if somebody has a dead spot in their pedal stroke, and we make them pedal more quickly through it, we might actually, by definition, we're going to, thinking out loud here, Sorry if my senses are a little clunky. By definition, we're going to accelerate the foot, which means we're going to decrease torque. Now, if the person is a speed-oriented athlete, meaning they gravitate towards solving problems of power by pedaling more quickly, then that might really help them, but they might also feel challenged during the peakier part of the stroke, right? On the flip side, if someone generates more force by pushing harder, they gravitate towards the torque end of the spectrum. Then they might make their dead spots bigger. Now, why do we care? Well, depends on the context. So this is how I'm thinking about dead spots and pedal strokes. And this is a, a derivation of all the conversations I've had following my podcast about how to pedal a bike, or this is a further development, I'll say. When a rider's on a flat road, if you live in Florida and you do a ton of group rides, you probably don't give a shit how peaky your pedal stroke is. Why? Because inertia and momentum both camouflage a crappy pedal stroke. When I say crappy, I mean choppy. I mean a pedal stroke with large dead spots. So a rider who is lacking suplex or who is lacking fluidity in their pedal stroke, and they just stab the pedals with a very peaky moment, a very brief but peaky moment, at four o'clock or three o'clock or wherever their peaky moment happens to be. Their peaky instant, we'll say, because it's a very, very short window of time. So this type of rider doesn't care if their pedal stroke is peaky because they're riding on flat roads. And immer- inertia and momentum, both, will conserve velocity of the system. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. So that means that a pedal... A rider who's riding on flat terrain can have a worse pedal stroke, or I'll say a peakier pedal stroke. I'm assigning a value judgment to it. It's not necessarily better or worse, but a peakier pedal stroke, and they may not know the difference. However, as soon as that rider begins to go up a steep climb, then things can get problematic because as any rider goes from flats to climbing, their cadence will get slower or lower, I'll say their muscle rate of contraction will get slower, their foot speed will drop, and this will magnify the dead spot of the pedal stroke in time, so to speak. It'll make the duration longer in milliseconds or maybe even seconds per stroke. And when this happens, because you're on a grade, I have to speak very carefully about the physics here. Someone corrected me on this in one of my previous episodes. You still have the tendency to move forward because of the inertia of the system. I think I'm speaking correctly on this. To be honest, the concepts of momentum and inertia are very close in my mind, and I have had them explained to me, but it's not always crystal clear intuitively. However, we'll say it this way. Gravity wants to pull you back down the hill, right? So when gravity wants to arrest your forward motion or your progress up the climb, then during every millisecond of pedal stroke where you are not applying as positive of force, the bike will decelerate. So when you have a really peaky stroke and you're climbing a steep hill, doesn't matter if you're in the saddle or out of the saddle, the bike will bob forward or accelerate on every single pedal stroke. And when you repeatedly accelerate the bike and the body, because if your body is still connected to your bike, then you're accelerating both of them. That's a very inefficient way to climb a hill. Lots of micro accelerations is a very expensive way to climb a hill metabolically and also in terms of physics because acceleration takes a lot more energy, right? So you're accelerating, decelerating, accelerating, decelerating twice every pedal stroke, once for the right leg and once for the left leg. Every complete pedal stroke of two legs, that is. So we want to avoid this situation. Now, what's the flip side? The flip side is that a rider who climbs a lot and it's sort of intuited, this goes into knowing yourself, that when they're riding next to someone else, a way to maximize their own speed is to ride with a smoother stroke and thus they start to intuitively expand their own power arc over a larger portion of the downstroke, this rider will pedal more smoothly and work to have a less peaky bell stroke and more supless we might say, more fluidity. They'll distribute the downstroke over a wider arc, right? Okay. So just to explain that concept, now back to our sprinter, our glycolytic rider who puts on rotor rings, he or she stands up during the, the money shot moment of their race, the sprint, the final punch. And what I heard from some of the world tour level sprinters that I've worked with is that rotor rings were actually disadvantaged because... Frequently, the way these sprints played out is you kicked two or possibly three times. But the rotor ring magnified their kick, their explosive ability, their peakiness in the stroke during the first acceleration. But that didn't help them because the first acceleration wasn't the limiter. The limiter is the final acceleration. It's how hard can you kick the second time or perhaps the third time. So what happens is the sprint opens And you follow the first wheel, and then you decide when to kick again. And this is very common. It doesn't always play out this way, but it's pretty common in World Tour Sprint. You can see it happening. So, when it works out this way, the rotor rings were potentially encouraging the sprinter that I spoke to, I'm not going to name him, he was on Garmin Sharp, to kick too much at the wrong time. And so he felt that it wasn't helpful in the timing of his sprint and it detracted from his instinct and intuition on when to use his strength. So that's an interesting piece of feedback because we would assume that a rider who is peakier in their pedal stroke and also a rider who is more glycolytic and capable of a higher peak during any given pedal stroke because they can generate more force, they have more muscle mass and they also have more explosive ability by definition. We would assume that having that extra little bit of leverage at the right moment would help them. But we have to think about how sprints play out. There's a peakier, earlier, acceleratory component to most sprints. And then there's a high end, which is more about keeping the glycolytic power at a very high level for a long time without falling off the table, say, or the plateau. And it seems that a rotor ring didn't help with that. Okay, so that's one example. The other example I heard speaking to a different type of world tour rider who was a climber, his feedback was that the the rotor rings worked really well until the point at which he blew up. And when he blew up, it wasn't his normal point of fatigue. It was like a global thermal nuclear meltdown. And the quads were completely lit and loaded. And to me, this makes sense because when you have a smaller rider who has less muscle mass and they're using a rotor ring in position three or four, what that's going to do is probably recruit a lot of quadriceps during that peaky moment or put a lot of leverage on the quadriceps and the way I'm thinking about it is almost like someone's Charlie horsing them during the peak of each pedal stroke. And that may or may not be a constructive way to go about riding your bike. It sounds like for this rider, it wasn't and that his muscles felt that increased leverage point, that longer lever with higher foot speed. No, sorry, correction. This is what's interesting about rotors is they give you a longer lever for a brief instant of the pedal stroke, but without fire, fire foot speed. So that means by definition, you have an increased moment of torque, a very small instant of increased torque at the foot. So this is why the rider probably felt in their quads. So somebody with not a lot of muscle mass almost had a negative repercussion from these rotor rings because it loaded the quads from so many repeated bouts of, microscopic increased torque. That's how I interpreted that data point. Now, again, this is two riders. I had two conversations about this, but these guys have been riding their bikes for 30 years at that point and each, and we're both very in touch with their bodies. So I respect their wisdom on what's happening. And that brings me to one of my points today that I want to make, or one of the philosophies I want to discuss, which is that, Ultimately, we can read all these scientific papers that talk about how rotor rings have this much increase in power or uh, osymmetric rings have that much increase in power or don't or whatever. And we can pick apart the data and we can ask, is the data meaningful? And one of the points that Uli made to me when I worked for SRM, that's Ulrich showbearer He's the inventor of the power meter. And i worked for him for a year and a half at SRM in Colorado Springs. And one of the things he said to me is, well, all the data that has been done to prove that rotor rings have increased power is flawed because the way an SRM or any cranked-based power meter works is they make an assumption about crank length and the lever arms that are used to generate force. And what a rotor ring or an osymmetric ring is doing is changing that lever arm. So any data they get is going to be inflated. That is what Willie said to me. Now, that was a long time ago. I worked for Willie in twenty fifth. 16. And I'm sure there have been studies that have been done with dual sided power meters, proper dual sided power meters, that is, pedal systems or two sided crank arm systems that are reliable. I have not seen this data yet. Maybe it's something to read about. And that might give us different insights. But we have the point being is we have to correct. Even those systems can't assume or could probably do assume a constant lever arm throughout the system but what you're doing is introducing a variable that that power meter is not equipped to deal with. So it becomes quite technical to measure whether there's an actual increase in power. But we don't need to externalize our power and only look at science for this. You can just go out and ride rotor rings if you really want to know and figure things out. That's what I mean when I say that we externalize our power. We don't have to look at a group of 60 well-trained elite cyclists and see if rotor rings gave them an increase of 21 Watts over 40 KTT. That's not the end all be all because bioindividuality rules everything. This is the concept that science misses. This is the concept that studies cannot account for. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the world of diet, One rider's kryptonite is another rider's rocket fuel. Example. I was at Steamboat a few weeks ago. One of the riders got up in the house I was staying at and made for, sorry, for dinner, they made vegan tofu with vegan bacon and a pile of quinoa, I believe, if I remember correctly. And Meanwhile, Nathan and I were having pasta and grass-fed, grass-finished steak. That's literally what we ate for three days before steamboat. And this was Nathan's idea, and I just went along with it. And it worked really well for both of us, actually. I know there's a whole gluten-free thing right now. I've come to the conclusion that gluten isn't a big deal for me, assuming other things are in balance. That's just me. But another person might completely lose it if they eat pasta before a race. However, I would have had a global meltdown had I had tofu, vegan bacon, and quinoa before my race. That would have not gone well, I guarantee you. I probably would have been up most of the night on the toilet. So one person's kryptonite, oh, and that person was on the podium in their race. So one person's kryptonite is another person's rocket fuel. This is why there is no diet. There is no keto diet. There is no carnivore diet. There's no caveman diet. There's your diet. You have to optimize for you as an individual. The same thing is true with rotor rings. That's why we can get completely different results with a sprinter and a climber. Think about the biomechanics of what's happening. Think about the lever arms you're creating on the bike. Think about the muscle mass that's driven. The changes in the muscle mass or the reaction in the muscle mass or the fascial system that is impacted by changing those lever arms. This is why bioindividuality rules everything. Everything we do, bike fit, orthotics, shoes, helmet choice, diet, hydration levels, all of it is ruled by bioindividuality. So when someone else tells you, I just ate the most amazing lunch ever, my choice is to listen with interest and then filter that story through my own life experience. And then decide, based on that experience, whether it's something I want to try. But if it's fuel that I have tried before and know does not work for me, there's a good chance that I'm probably not going to have that lunch. And that is internal knowing. That is your own experience, your own end of one, which is always happening. So I really feel, the point I'm trying to make, I really feel that a lot of people have given away that power to science. They have abandoned their own internal knowing for... What they believe is the altar of knowledge and truth. And this is not how things work. Science is not an altar of truth. It's just information. Your job is to discern whether that information is useful to you or not. And I can tell you when I read scientific papers, most of the time the information is not useful. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it's not. And I know that'll probably ruffle a lot of feathers, so... Cool. I'm not saying science is bad. I'm not saying it's worthless. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm not saying the concept of study is not worthwhile. What I'm saying is most of the time when I read a scientific paper, the information is not useful to me other than to tell me what I already do. I mean, that's useful, right? Sometimes we have to confirm what we already figured out. So what I'm saying is, if you want to really know about your rotor rings, put them on your bike and try different things and listen to your body. How do your legs feel? Try different efforts. Are you a glycolytic rider or a more VO2 based rider, right? And this goes back to my tenet of athleticism. The number one thing that you have to do as an athlete, I command you to do it. It is your responsibility is to know yourself and you should have an acute understanding and awareness of where you are on the glycolytic or VO2 spectrum. This is 101 for cycling. It's so important. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then your homework has been laid out. Go forth and make the studies. Start by watching Sebastian Weber's videos on Inside on YouTube. That's a great education starting point if you don't know what I'm talking about. Because this is prime, primary to all cycling. It is so important, Right. And, oh, I'm in Vegas right now. I'm going past Trump Tower. Interesting. So we have to know ourselves as athletes. This is how we improve. This is how we figure out what our rate limiting factors are. And also it's part of the journey of athletics. That's one of the things athletics does that's most important is teach you about yourself. And remember, sport is training for life. I'm going to say that again. Because many people have this backwards. Sport is training for life. It's playtime. Unless you're literally making a fortune or putting your kids through college, sport is only training for life. That's it. So one other aspect I'll share on rotor rings of my own experience that might be helpful is fast forward a few years later past my time trial experiment and I used rotor rings on my single speed cyclocross bike. Yes, you heard that correctly. I raced single speed cross, air quotes, seriously, end air quotes, for about, I don't know, maybe three seasons, four seasons. I raced on the Mosaic single barrel team and it was a truckload of fun. And I loved it because cyclocross is one of the goofiest sports on the planet anyway. And what better way to make something goofy than make it a single speed race? Uh, more goofy I'll say. It was fun for me. It was sort of a rock to uncover after I was done with my, you know, professional career, we'll say. Uh I think I took my last paycheck for riding a bike in around 2013 and that was about the time I was doing single speed crossing Colorado in the fall and winter pretty seriously. I mean, again, air quote seriously. And what I liked about it was it was really challenging for me. You know, when I was fifteen and I got struck by lightning and decided I was a bike racer. I went out and mowed lawns and did all the things needed to get a bike for each discipline. I decided I wanted to do it all. So I bought a really cheap mountain bike. I bought a cheap cross bike and I managed to cobble together a track bike. It wasn't really cobbled. It was pretty nice, actually. And then I had my road bike and I did all the things. And by far, by a landslide, I was worst at cyclocross. I was terrible at cyclocross. Now, some of it is that I had this roadie mindset where I was riding the skinniest tires possible, and they were probably pumped to 75 PSI. Uh, This was in 1989, to be fair. So I really had no clue what the hell I was doing and no mentor in that at all. It was just Jonathan Vodders and I getting like last and second to last at Colorado State Cross Championships on he probably raced his mountain bike. I may have two at that point. So we were both terrible at it. And. What's interesting about cyclocross is it requires full body coordination at speed. You got to be able to handle the bike. You got to be able to get on and off the bike. You got to do other things than just go hard and fast, go fast in a straight line. Right. And I lacked all of the things needed to do all of those things, the functional fitness, the capacity to run while carrying a bike. I was terrible at all this stuff. And that was a big part of the lesson of me learning about my own limits so fast forward to many years later and i'm racing single speed cross and i'm just reveling in the fact that i'm actually somewhat functional at it and i've made big progresses in my own function as an athlete and i remember actually coming home after i won my first cyclocross race ever and i've been married for i don't know 15 years at this point and i told my wife that i won and she looked at me in disbelief and said wait, I thought you told me it was a cyclocross race. <laughs> I said, it was. And she kind of giggled at me because she knows that I'm pre- I've i been pretty bad at cyclocross. So when I won my first race, it was great. And I've won a lot of Colorado State time trial championships or championships in general on the track, especially. And to be honest, some of them meant more than others. But my most meaningful one is when I won Colorado State championships. Single speed cyclocross, hell yeah. So there you go. Enough about that. What I'm trying to get to is that I rode a rotor ring during that whole chapter. And I used it most of the time in position four. I used a really, really loose chain ring, uh, chain tension, sorry, with guards on either end, front and rear, so things wouldn't fall off. And I don't, I think I threw a chain once in three years of racing much to the shock of everyone else, but you have to run very loose tension with a rotor ring because you don't want a tight spot during the high point of the chain ring radius increase. And this is what I found is, okay, what is single speed cyclocross? What did I learn from it? Well, in addition to the fact that I got to learn more about myself and become more functional, you also learn all these cool things. This is just a side note during a normal cyclocross race or perhaps a criterium or any other bike race, when you're going through a corner racing, I think it's easy for most of us to assume we are going as fast as we can. We're on the limit of crashing, right? But cyclocross in particular is a sport that puts you in a perilous position. It gives you less than optimal traction and then asks you to ride in conditions that require lots of traction. So that's why cyclocross is interesting to me because it limits your equipment. And so it puts more skill into the hands of the rider. It's also why at times cyclocross can be downright stupid you get into really muddy and icy conditions, even the best riders in the world are crashing multiple times. Some people find this amusing. Others just find it tedious. Okay, whatever side of the fence you're on there. The point is, is that it develops your skills as a rider. It teaches you how to handle a bike really well in certain conditions. And so I began to explore these limits. And one of the things I figured out is that during all those years, I was racing a geared bike in cyclocross. I actually wasn't cornering as fast as I thought as I wasn't cornering as fast as I thought I was at my maximum. And the reason I figured that out is because when you're in a single speed race, the objective is basically to ride the biggest gear you can get away with. And what that means is when you break or slow down for a corner, you have a massive penalty because you've got to accelerate that gear coming out of the corner. And you learn this really quickly. So, you start thinking about covering the speed, covering the course, conserving as much momentum as possible. Momentum, inertia, anyway. We'll, we'll go with momentum. And sorry, physics people. Uh, sorry, Dad. My dad was an astrogeophysicist. So, you think about it from a different equation, uh, side of the equation, and you learn to preserve speed through corners in different ways. You take different lines and you Start to let the bike float under you. And you're thinking about your center of gravity, which is right behind your belly button, basically. That's the center of gravity for you when you're riding a bike, even in the hip-hinged position. And you want to conserve the momentum of that center of gravity going over bumps and over little rises and kickers and on off-cambers and all those things. And that's a different way to think about it than it is just go as hard as you can on every straight piece of track and then break and go around a corner as fast as possible. They're, are different lenses through which to view the race. And that's why I like single speed because it taught me that it also taught me that I could go just as fast on one gear as I could on a geared bike. I have a truckload of data showing my average speed from different races on the same day. Frequently I would race my geared bike in the open race and then race the single speed. And my lap times were very, very similar on most courses in Colorado. Now, that's a caveat, because if the course had a hill that required you to ride up it where a single speed was at a big disadvantage, like a, a steep hill that you could ride on a geared bike, but you couldn't on a single speed, then your lap times would obviously be influenced negatively for the single speed race. But when I did it this season and compared all this data, none of those courses panned out that way. It was all just we you, you ran in the same places regardless of the bike. So the lap times were pretty much identical. The average powers were pretty much identical. I had power meter on both bikes. The heart rates were identical. The only difference was the cadence was about 20 RPM lower on the single speed day. So that was quite interesting to me. But when I used this bike, here's what happened. I became adept at riding out of the saddle more because I was standing up on this big gear. Every time I came out of a U-turn or a sharp corner or a narrow corner or an off-camber, I had to accelerate. And I figured out pretty quickly that doing that out of the saddle was a more functional way for me to make power. And so that required a lot of efforts that were standing up out of the saddle in a big gear with a lot of torque and a low cadence. And during those moments, I think the rotor ring helped me. And this is just based off me switching back and forth between the single speed bike with the rotor ring and the geared bike, which had round rings. Now I don't have the adequate data to support this. There's no, I didn't have Garmin off-road pedals or whatever back then to compare power arcs or anything like that. But I'll say this, I believe a round, uh, sorry, an oval chain ring in the correct position can help a rider during moments of extremely high torque, low cadence, and maximal efforts. However, that effort might need to be intermittent, meaning in a cyclocross race, the power application is very stochastic. It's only a few brief seconds here and there, right? It's not a climb of a half an hour with continued pressure. If I rode that same ring on that climb, I might've experienced the same thing as the climber did, which is an explosion of my quads because of those increased moments of torque. I don't know. I never put the rotor on my road bike and rode it for a long period of time up steep climbs. Uh, Actually, that's not totally true. I I did do a a spell where I had an inner rotor ring and an outer round ring on my road bike, but I'll say that the difference between in the size of a 39 or whatever it was, the, the ovalness of the rotor wasn't significant enough for me to really notice that much of a difference. So I don't think it kind of mattered. I think you have to have more differential between the round in order to really figure out what the hell's going on. So I'll generalize that statement too, because I have conversations with a lot of my clients about crank arm length. Everybody wants to know if they should go longer, or go shorter. The old school line of thought is of course that longer crank equals more leverage equals more power. This is in my opinion, a second grade way to look at what is a PhD level problem. At some point, I will interview some folks who have done a lot of research on crank arm length and get their thoughts on it on the pod down the road, hopefully. That's the plan. But in the short term, I'll say that here's my rule on crank arm length When people ask me since we're talking about lever arms. The vast majority of people who are struggling at all with bike fit, especially if you have chronic knee problems or chronic lower back problems or problems with hip stability and saddle sores, the chances that you are going to benefit from going to a shorter crank are overwhelming. The only people who are justified in pushing the envelope on crank length, in my opinion, are world tour level climbers who are trying to win the Vuelta. And the reason I say that is Most years the Volta finishes with about six stages that are mountaintop finishes that are on ridiculously steep hills. And in that moment, when you are completely out of gears going as hard as possible and in a low cadence, high torque situation, at that moment, the longer crank arm will only help you. However, you have to drag that crank arm length around during all the flat stages and all the training rides and all the motor pace sessions and all the other things you have to do with high foot speed before that point. And sometimes that collective body of work with a, remember we're increasing the lever arm, you're increasing the foot speed at the same torque. So for every two and a half mils, you increase the crank arm, you're increasing the functional demand on the athlete by eightfold, probably because you have to make the same, Torque with a higher foot speed or an even higher foot speed with less torque, a lot faster foot speed with less torque, in order to maintain the same power. And that is a big functional ask. Most athletes can't do that. So this is why even a few millimeters of crank arm length can make a big difference in an athlete's outcome. So when you're a world tour climber, meaning you're getting paid to ride your bike and you're trying to win the Volta or help someone win the Volta or win a stage of the Volta, then we can talk about you riding a little bit longer cranks than someone who has the same anthropometric proportions that you do. Right. But otherwise almost everyone else should be on the conservative side of crank length, in my opinion, less shearing force on the patella, less acute angle of the femur and torso at the top of the stroke. There are lots of reasons to do it. And remember, if you're thinking, well, I don't want to give up that leverage, there are three ways we change the lever arm while recycling. The lever, the leverage being basically what's driving the rear cassette. There are three ways. The first is to change your crank arm length. And this has the implication or the ramification of also influencing foot speed and foot path or pedal circumference. The second way to change that lever arm is to shift your front derailleur, and the third is to shift your rear derailleur. Those do not influence foot speed or pedal circumference, but they do change the leverage point. So what happens is we put people on a shorter crank arm. I recommend at least five mils change if you're going to change it. We raise the saddle one-to-one in most cases. We also raise the bars one-to-one in most cases. And then we... Instruct people to maintain the same normal native cadence ranges that they typically would. And most of the time, people do that and they have success. If people don't raise the saddle, then they usually feel like they're riding a tricycle and they reject the short cranks. Sometimes we need to bump the saddle back a little bit. It already goes back because you're raising it on a of bias. But sometimes we need to bump back a little bit more, depending on the athlete, to gain that feeling of leverage at 3 or 4 o'clock. Because that's where you're going to feel the shorter crank. And then things are resolved. They feel that what they're missing is that peakiness at the top of the stroke, that magic little moment of high torque that you get. And that moment is really important. A pedal stroke should not be perfectly smooth. It should have some peakiness to it. We are humans. We're not motors. However, if it's too peaky, then the bike becomes too uh, acceleratory. I want to say that's a poor way to say it. The bike accelerates too often during each pedal stroke. And again, if you're living in Florida and you're on flat group rides, maybe you don't care. That's fine. If you're doing a flat TT, sure, is the best way to pedal. I don't know. It probably depends on the fiber type of the athlete, where they are in that VO2 max versus VLA max spectrum, right? And how they solve the equation of making power. I think fiber type is something people don't talk about enough. I'll make that blanket statement. So big picture concept on rotor rings. I think they could have application for you as an individual. One, two, I think you have to go out and find out for yourself. And three, maybe there's good research out there on true two-sided systems that look at whether the power arc or the peak point of power changes. I'm unaware of those. If you're aware of them and you want to share them with me, send them to me an email and I'll drop them into the show notes. CWPCoaching.me.com. I'm kind of giving up on Instagram and their DM. I'm a little frustrated with it. Cause I probably am too damn old to work it right. But it seems like I go in there and there's a message that's a month old that I never saw. And I don't know what the hell's going on. So sorry for those of you who have reached out to me. Hopefully I've gotten back to everyone on Instagram. It's not my intention to ask people to communicate with me and then not get back to them. That's annoying. Uh, But that may have happened. So I apologize if that happened to you. I try to get back to everyone. Uh, Timeliness, however, is not always possible. There's only one me. I've yet to transmorgify myself. If anyone has a transmorgifier they want to loan me, otherwise known as a cardboard box with a hole in it that says transmorgifier on the side, I will make copies of myself so that I can do more things. Uh, so let me know if you got one of those and you want to rent it out or just loan it to me. That That's a great way to support the pod. I covered rotor rings, and I covered internalization of knowledge versus externalization of knowledge or power. And I tied those to the rings. And now I want to talk about another general philosophical concept in cycling, which is tension, internal tension or friction. What do I mean by this? This came to me the other day while I was riding because I was having this ride with a client where I was just really in a very nice flow state. And the mindset I was in, the effort I was undertaking was one of pressure on the pedals but without need to press on the pedals it was simply a moment of joy of riding fast effort level felt low but speed was moderately high Uh, I was on a gravel bike on a single track trail and so I was sort of punching it over the climbs but not in any sense of a need to get to the top of the climb faster it was more from a perspective of negotiating the terrain in a way that felt natural. It just felt like my directive was to ride A to B quickly and efficiently. And I was being, to use Ron's words, pulled towards the finish of that segment of that stretch of trail. I don't mean segment in a Strava way. I mean segment in in a way of segment of a ride, chunk of a ride. And this was a really nice moment. And it's a moment that I try to find in most of my rides where I'm simply riding for the joy of riding. There's no attachment to outcome or pace or no to-do list, no external parameters or convictions about the outcome of the ride or the moments of the ride. I'm not there to, do anything other than cycle and be present in that moment. And I don't think many cyclists view very many moments of cycling that way. You know, especially when we're in the world of power meters and training programs, there's always some fricking onus, some minutes you got to spend in this zone or target power for that climb or whatever. And One point I'll make on that is that, you know, power meters really allowed a lot of insight into athletes and into their own physiology, into their capabilities. And of course, whenever you put a yardstick on something, then you can apply the principle that which is measured improves. So that's pretty cool. However, I will also say that the concept of power meters is so obtuse sometimes that it takes away from the joy of cycling and it also obfuscates what cycling is about. And what do I mean by that? Well, okay. How do most people write training programs? Myself included as a coach. is i I'll give people efforts of a given duration. Cycling is very duration oriented. And some of that is just the nomenclature and convention of the sport. Well, we give you a three by 12 or three by 20 or a four by eight or five by eight or five by five, whatever, or three sets of Tabatas, right? Three sets of Tabatas with preload. These are all workouts that are in our library or TEF coaching library. And there's nothing good or bad about this, but why, why is this so obfuscated from real cycling? Well, what is cycling? Cycling is you get on this Victorian contraption to use the words of Greg Choate and you pedal from A to B. And what is a bike race? It's the first person to get from A to B to get from the start line to the finish line. Now, What's different about that from a duration based effort is when you're going from A to B, whether that A to B is five kilometers or 240 kilometers, the faster you go, the sooner the finish line comes to you. So this is positive reinforcement. You're working towards a goal. Also, you're being pulled towards a goal, right? I could argue that there's a magnetic attraction to a finish line when you cross that finish line, you have a sense of accomplishment. You completed the distance. This is part of what's magic about cycling is that it gives you the ability to do this. When you do an interval of 20 minutes, no matter how hard you go, it still takes 20 minutes. It's duration-based. So there's a bit of negative reinforcement because you're just watching the seconds tick by. And it's a very Yang way to think about Sports, it's very, what is what is yang or yang energy? It's very accomplish, do, but it's also cutting, it's cleaving, it's categorizing, it's dissecting, right? It is dividing. So when we look at sport through the yang lens, or we put on our yang glasses, eyewear, tint will say, when we're wearing our, our eyewear with our young tin, everything is to be cleaved and accomplished. And only when those to-do lists have been checked off do we feel good about ourselves. Right? Now, there's young in a bike race, of course. And that also is accomplishing. But it's from a slightly different angle, I would argue. Because we're not only doing it for the sake of accumulating time in a zone. We're not doing it to look back and see if we optimized anything. The judge of whether someone optimized a bike race is the placing they got. Right? If you cross the line first, you optimize things better than everyone else. You probably still made a dozen mistakes in most bike races, but you still managed to win. This is how this works. But in a workout, we artificially optimize things because we give ourselves this perfect to-do list of 3 by 20 and as long as every second of those 60 minutes of work is between 282 and 304 watts, then the workout was a success, and we did everything possible within our power that day to be the best possible cyclist. Yay, summer, you get four gold stars. And I think this is uh, bullshit, if I'm honest. Because if you think that the coach is smart enough to know exactly what will make you a perfect rider, then you have inflated your coach to an unrealistic standard. And if you don't think that you know what your own training should be about, then you are externalizing your power. But you're also working, I would argue, in a, you're operating in a field of friction, because you're working towards a goal that is very external. Am I saying never do intervals or never do three by twenties? No, they have a purpose and they can make you better as a rider. What I'm inviting you to do is think about your relationship to your power meter and the bike and the types of efforts you do and how they influence your psychology. And occasionally you might try using some training that is We'll say Fartlek-based, which is German for speed play. And it's a type of training that's a little more playful. So an example of Fartlek running would be you sprint from one telephone pole to the next and then you recover from the finished telephone pole to the next one and then you start again and sprint again. So what's the point? You're using landmark-based starting and finishing points for your efforts, which again, are more A to B. You're covering distance. You're not concerned with the pace between these poles so much in so much as you're just feeling how fast you can go for 10 of those telephone pole efforts. This is equivalent to simply getting to the bottom of a roller and saying, I'm going to go really fast up this roller, 9 out of 10. When I get to the top, I'll recover. Then I'll do the same thing on the next roller and the same thing on the next roller. And I'll pick a route with eight rollers and that's my workout. And I've ridden these hills enough and I know my body well enough to know that this is a good amount of work that will challenge me, but not push me off the cliff and make me nuclear tired. As I tell my athletes all the time, tired is good. Nuclear wasteland is bad. We very, very, very rarely, if ever, want to go to a DEF CON five level fatigue. That's reserved for only the highest level athletes in only the most controlled environments, which is not most athletes 99% of the time. And by controlled environment, I mean we can overreach on purpose and then we can intentionally we can intentionally overreach on purpose and then we have this space to allow for a full and adequate recovery to reap the benefits of that overreaching what I see happening in amateur athletics all the time is people wanting to overreach but not giving themselves proper room to recover afterwards this is like going to do a plant medicine ceremony and not giving yourself time for integration afterwards just go to work on Monday after blasting off to see the moon all weekend doesn't make any sense. You can't just do all the things all the time. The more things you do, the more time you have to allow to undo. Basic concept. In Paul's world, that would be called Dr. Quiet. Right? His four Dr. Model. So, to tie together with a make happy bow when we have an internal sense of ease, it's possible to have rides with flow state. If you have friction in your life, meaning you're conflicted about whether you should be on the bike that day, or you are in a headspace where subconsciously or simmering in the background is a pile of work that you're uncomfortable leaving at the desk while you go ride. If you are in too many headspaces at once, then it's unlikely you're going to find this flow state during your rides. If you had an argument with your spouse or your daughter or your son or your friend or your boss and it hasn't been laid to rest, it's unlikely you're going to find flow state during your ride. Now, sometimes we use riding as that processing time, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that can be good. Having that quiet time to go be by yourself and think about the discussion you had or the fight you had. This can be very therapeutic. That said, when I do my introduction questionnaire for my bike fits, I ask people if they have a meditation practice. It's one of my questions. And frequently what I get, so the answer is, well, I ride my bike or a trail run and i consider that a form of meditation and as one of my teachers told me many years ago cycling by yourself in the mountains is meditative it's not meditation if you're a person who goes all the time and does all the time and yangs all the time you're always dividing and cutting and cleaving and making into doing that's output we have to make time to recombobulate and bring in input. And especially for those of you in the endurance athletic community, which I would assume every one of my audience is. If you're in yang mode. And you're not meditating, you're doing yourself a disservice. I will make that generalized statement. Now, I'm not saying what type of meditation it has to be but I will say that one of the hardest things to do for an athlete is to get your ass on that cushion. And it is essential. We have to bring stillness to our lives to offset the motion. This is part of how you resolve friction. And this is part of giving yourself the presence of mind to actually focus on the task at hand, which makes your task doing more effective. This is the paradox of meditation. When you put it down and walk away and teach the mind to be still or at least the body to be still, I'll make that clear. Not all meditation is about stillness of mind. And a lot of people give up meditation because they beat themselves up because they don't have a still mind. The mind is minding. It's what it does. It flows. It's like a, it's like an ocean being driven by a current at all times. It's like a flowing river. You can't ask a river to stop flowing. This is how a mind works. So don't beat yourself up without getting into a podcast about meditation techniques. But what I'm saying is in order to reduce friction in your life, we are obligated to find stillness in life. This is how you resolve friction. And when you reduce friction, then you're capable of more present doing and more present focus and ultimately more flow and more joy. I think I'm passing some sort of Tesla gigafactory or something. Without getting into a conversation about sustainability and what that means, I'll just say that the amount of light that's being reflected by that, those poles, that is not natural. There will be ramifications. Unintended consequences of technology. It's a thing, people. People thing. Don't be convinced that all these new gizmos are our savior because I don't believe they are. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say on that for now. That's a little controversy to stick a pin into. Thanks for listening. I'm going to seal this one up. I hope you found this useful. If you did, wonderful. I'm going to ask something of you as my audience Back when I first started this podcast, if any of you have actually listened that far back, I have no idea if my audience is the same or not. I don't think I have a way to tell that. I did make the claim that I'm not trying to gain an audience. I'm not here to become famous. And that is still true. However, it does help me when you share the podcast with other people. So this is what I'll ask. I really am uncomfortable in this moment because I don't like asking things of other people. My job is to help other people. However, you can help me help other people by sharing this podcast. So, if you think what I'm doing is of value, I will now humbly ask you to give me some sort of happy star rating on the platform of your choice and or send it to someone who you think will benefit. If I, during my ramblings today you thought of someone one of your writing friends or your spouse or your uncle or your child who might benefit from my prognostications or soliloquies. It wasn't really a prognostication. If you think that these people will benefit, then please just send them a link to my pod and maybe they'll listen to it. And hopefully they'll benefit from it because that's why I do this is to help people. And I do get consistent messages from people that I have helped them. And that's why I keep doing it. Because I'm making millions of dollars. It's not because I like to hear myself talk. It's because I've learned things and I want to pass on those things to other people. And I do also subscribe to Peter Atiyah's idea that these beliefs are strong opinions that are loosely held. And I was listening to one of Peter's episodes recently. Some of his stuff is not for me, but a lot of his content is great. And I mean, a lot of it's just too medical. I'm not a doctor, but I really enjoy a lot of his episodes. And one of the concepts he talks about is why he won't write a book or didn't want to write a book. He did, but he didn't want to write a book. And that's because his learning, his horizon is always evolving. He's always learning new things. Yeah, this glowing sun tower thing that's pointing at all these solar panels or whatever's going on here, this is not natural. None of this looks like an earthly, natural thing. This is so man-made. Um, That's stating the obvious. It's a somewhat trite thing to say, but what I'm saying is it's not natural in a way that instinctually tells me something. There will be a bad consequence from it. Harnessing this much energy in one place doesn't seem right. I'll just say that. That said, I know nothing about what I'm looking at. I'm just telling you what my instinct is, my response. So Peter's idea is that we have strong opinions that are loosely held. And this is because he recognizes that as he learns more, the opinions that he held so strongly in the past may be revised or remodeled because he's always learning. And the most important component of this is that his ego is not attached to all the shit that he knows. This is just another way for Peter to say that he's not trapped in the Dunning-Kruger curve. And this is also something I do not take lightly. I, too, seek to not be trapped in by the Dunning-Kruger curve. If you don't know what that is, please look it up. But it affects everyone. It's a condition of being a human being and being in society and being in relationship with other people and learning all the things we're learning. And if we have our shit together, we are constantly aware of where we are in this curve and we're self-conscious of not making what is the second error of man, which is The error of knowledge. Look at all the shit I know and all the shit you don't. This is a fundamental error of mankind. Welcome to the California Inspection Facility. see if I'm going to be inspected. We're going to keep recording through this just for funsies. I think they're just going to wave me through. Unless they see the marijuana plants I've got in the back of the Subaru here. Just kidding. I, I don't actually smoke weed. There's no one here. Literally not even a person in the booth. Apparently I can bring anything I want to California. Dead bodies. Car full of tribbles. All kinds of things. Anyway, I'll let you go. Sorry, I'm just rambling now, but I just want to say in closing that I do subscribe to Peter's belief that my beliefs are, my opinions are simply opinions and my ego is not attached to whether I'm right or wrong. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'll say it. What I'm doing is giving you everything I have to offer from what I've learned at this point, which is a massive amount of stuff. I know a shit ton of stuff. And at the same time, I humbly recognize that I know almost nothing. There are people out there who know so much more about the topics that I'm talking about. There are experts in these fields that would annihilate me in four senses if we were to have some sort of intellectual joust. Not that I'm competing with them. That's not the right way to think about it. But you see what I'm saying? I, I know so much. And yet at the same time, I humbly recognize how little I know. And this is why I will be a student for the rest of my life. So when I make these recordings, and if I do write a book, it is with that same mentality in mind, which is I will give you the best information I have, but with the giant star caveat asterisk that all of it might get retracted and revised later. Sorry about that. Doing the best I can. That's what's up, people. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Please share it with someone if you found it beneficial. If you feel so inclined, go give me some stars and a rating. If you think my pod's a piece of junk, well, maybe keep that secret. You probably aren't here at this point anyway. Uh, but send me an email. If you think it's a piece of junk and tell me why. If you think I'm wrong, tell me why I want to hear it. If you think I'm full of shit. Let's have a conversation. Let's have a discourse. I think that it should be healthy for people to have disagreements and it should be okay for people to disagree with each other. That's one thing that we're tenuously on the cliff. We're on a tenuous cliff with permitting disagreement right now. Thanks everyone. Talk to you next week for the next episode. Ciao, ciao. Ride consciously, ride fast.
0: Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them... I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge. Understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And some of those opinions are pretty strong. But they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests, is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic of modern society, even if we disagree. We ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people, and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not, to be clear, to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.